Right. Right, so we're in Leviticus. <laughs> and um, we've just read this passage, and uh, I'm sure many of us now are scratching our heads thinking, what on earth is this about? And that's absolutely fine. If you're feeling like that, good. That's good. You're going to enjoy it today. Now, this series is um, obviously Leviticus chapter 1. It's um, all about coming close to God. And today's title is, How Do I Get In? So, so once you get to the door, we, were, we read last week that um, Moses, God called to him from inside the tent. Because obviously Moses just could not walk in. So we're going to be looking at that today. And all of this... Uh, kind of first few chapters of Leviticus is wrapped up in this idea of sacrifice as we lots of blood, lots of guts. If you're not good with that, you're going to struggle. <laughs> okay. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about sacrifice. Um, I tend to think of Indiana Jones films myself and some kind of um, South American anthropological kind of movie or film about some remote, remote tribe in the middle of nowhere that's kind of doing this hideous sacrifices before their God. Um, we could think more closer to home, maybe like a parent sacrifices themselves for their child in many ways every day. As the, my friend became a parent and the first thing she said was, it's shown me how utterly selfish I am. Because it was just such uh, a shock to her that suddenly she couldn't put herself first every single time. It was all about her child. Um, or we might think about the sacrifice, maybe we might make for loved ones if they're ill. We're willing to sacrifice our time and our energy to look after them because we love them. But when we think about sacrifice in the Old Testament, you tend to think, I think, a whole lot of blood. You can imagine it, can't you? You're in a hot desert and you're slaughtering animals. You're cutting their throats. Blood is everywhere. You, the stench must have been unbelievable, and the flies everywhere. And we are told that this produces a pleasing aroma. <laughs> now we'll get to that as we go on. It's tough for us because sacrifice is really removed. Like, it's not something that we do. We go to Waitrose, we buy our nice little package of uh, steak, it comes. You don't really need to know where it came from, and you kind of don't even need to touch it. You can just kind of get your fork and put it on the grill, and you don't have to touch it at all, do you? But sacrifice is still at the heart of the Christian faith. So we've got to look at it, because if we don't look at these Old Testament passages, if we don't really get to grips with what this kind of strange, weird thing was about... We're never going to truly get the depths of what the New Testament writers, who are rich in this, were writing. It will just be a very shallow kind of look at the New Testament, because we won't understand what's behind it all. Now, last week, John gave us a little bit of an intro, didn't he, about Leviticus. And these first four, sort of five books of the Bible are written in order, and Leviticus follows on nicely from Exodus... Um, and here in Leviticus, the Israelites are still getting instructions on how to be the people of God. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, God says to them, Be holy, 
Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. These people that he'd taken out of Egypt, a new bunch of people living together, were supposed to look and act how the people of God should look and act. And they should be different from people around them. But there is a really subtle change when we hit Leviticus. Because if in Exodus, do you remember, there's that massive mountain that, Mo- that Moses has to climb up to get to the top. And God is speaking from the mountain that no one can touch. But in Leviticus, God is in the heart of his people. He is not up above But he is, as I say, because he's in a tabernacle, in a tent, he's tabernacling amongst his people. And all the Israelites are around him. And Leviticus is not about so much maybe coming near, but staying near. How do you get, in a situation where when God was up the mountain, you couldn't even touch the mountain, now this powerful holy God is in the middle of you, how on earth have you got a chance of survival? Because this God is so perfect in every way. It's a little bit like oil and water. The two, the humans, the created, and the creator God, are like oil and water. They're just not going to mix. Because one is perfect and holy and good and right. And all the people around are anything but that. So this is our conundrum that we're looking at. So, last week we had John, and he looked at verse 2, speak to the Israelites when any of you bring an offering. And straight off, God is telling them how they can not only come near, but stay near. And you read at the beginning, it says, verse 3, if, if any of you, and um, in this series, you look at, uh, 1 verse 3 says if, 2 verse 1 says when, 3 verse 1 says if. You get this kind of when, if kind of thing going on. It's the idea that the gift that you're going to bring is your choice. You don't have to bring it. It's your choice. But it's expected that you will bring it if you want to stay close to God. You don't have to. God is never going to force you to do it. It's your choice, but it's expected if you want to stay close, you're going to need to bring it. And the burnt offering is one of three principal offerings that we see right at the beginning, chapter 1, 2, and 3. And we're going to go over those in the next few weeks. But the burnt offering was the one that was most frequently done, morning and evening. Burnt offerings, lots of them. And it was special because it's the only offering... That is completely consumed. You can't keep any of the offering for yourself. The priests aren't going to get any of the offering. The only person that gets the offering is God. And you read it could come from the herd or the flock or even a bird. It wasn't a matter of wealth. Even if you were poor, you'd catch yourself a bird and you could take that. But you couldn't keep any of it for you. You couldn't withhold a little bit. You couldn't hold anything back. You had to put the whole lot on the altar and watch the whole lot go up in flames. And in verse 3, we read that it had to be a male animal. 
It had to be perfect for a perfect God. It had to be the best of its kind, of the most value. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David is about to sacrifice burnt offerings to the Lord. And this guy offers him free cattle and free wood. And David says to him, you know, I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. He knows that this offering has got to sting. It's got to cost him something. It can't be something he just got for free and went, oh, there you go, God, have that. No, this is the best, the most perfect, the most valuable thing. And you're going to watch the whole lot go up in flames. And I was thinking about this, like your first bit of the process is to select it. Now, you might have had a difficult year, not much rain, your family's struggling a bit. And at this point, it's tempting, isn't it, to offer something a little bit cheaper. You might think, "Mm, we've got a few financial difficulties in the future, maybe we shouldn't offer that one. The second struggle is it's got to be the best. And you might be tempted at this point to think, right, oh, well, we just kind of ignore that bit. Okay, so we've got a bit of a wonky leg, but that's all right. It'll be fine. No, this has got to be the best. You can't ignore anything, anything at all that might be wrong with this animal. And there's a real battle probably that takes place. You know the good that you ought to do, but there's this ongoing battle of should you just selectively think, "Mm, that one will do, I'll have that one. No, it's got to be the best. And after the selection process, the worshipper has got to present the animal at the entrance, it says, at the tent of meeting, so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. He's to lay his hand on the animal's head of the burnt offering, and it will be acceptable to make an atonement for him. Now, very long word, don't worry about that. It's really visual in your faceness, isn't it? When we read it like this, it's a bit dry, but I want you to imagine now that you've got your animal in front of you, and you've put your hand on top of the animal's head, and you're pressing down on his head, and he is taking on anything that you have done wrong. He is going to be your substitute before God. This innocent little fluffy sheep that you've chosen, the best one that you have. And as you take your knife, you physically, not the priest, not Waitrose, you have got to slit its throat. And you have got to watch that blood pour out. Now a few of you are like, yes, because this is the really in your faceness, the reality of the seriousness of your sin before a holy God. It's a perfect picture of what you deserve as you come to the holy God knowing that actually you cannot go in, but this animal is your substitute. This animal is going to die and God is going to accept that so that you can no God. Now God set this whole thing up. 
And the Israelites had to be physically engaged in worship. There was no watching the worship. You had to be in it, in amongst it from the start. You couldn't defer it to the priests. You had to be doing it. This relationship with the Lord was achieved by God's grace, that he was willing to accept this animal on your behalf. But it was not cheap grace. This is your best you've brought. And God in his grace is going to let that animal take your place. Now the priests, they don't just stand there, they have a role. Look at verse 5. It says that they are to take the blood and sprinkle it against the altar on all sides at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Or in the case of the bird, verse 15, they just kind of drain it out because it's so tiddly. And in in chapter 17, verse 11, we read this. This is why it's happening. You might think, what is that about? Why all this blood? I don't understand. What's going on? Chapter 17, verse 11 says, and it's up on the screens. So the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make an atonement. That means in your place to make you at one with God again. Remember the oil and the water, you can't mix them. To make you one so that you can mix. The atonement for yourself on the altar is the blood that makes an atonement for one's life. Leviticus makes it really clear that blood features prominently sacrifices. Blood is the seat of life. When the blood is shed, the life has been laid down and offered in your place. So that's kind of your picture. There you've got your innocent animal, the best that you have in your place. So let's have a think. There's a couple of things we can get from this. First, The underlying feature of the burnt offering is to make an atonement, to be in your place for you, to get you at one again with the holy God. And this wasn't in regard to specific sins. Later on, in the fourth one, we're going to look at sin offerings. When you know you've done something wrong, when you've deliberately done something or haven't done something. No, this isn't for that. This is not for what we fail to do but rather for who we are. It's that kind of broken people, lost, rebellious against God, just in that position, before we can go anywhere near God. It's not a matter of me saying, oh, I've been quite good this week, I think I'll go on in. No. We need something to completely cover us before we do anything with God at all. Secondly, It was to cause God pleasure. Noah offered his sacrifice after the flood as a thank offering. It was a burnt offering to thank God for his mercy. Hezekiah offered thanksgiving when they completed the cleansing of the temple. To offer God something reflecting a fully devoted, thankful heart holding nothing back. It's interesting, isn't it? As we offer this animal, you can hold none of it back. Like, you couldn't say, I'm going to offer this bit to God, I'm going to preserve the rest with salt, and my family are going to live off it for the next few years. It's all going to go up in smoke. Do you remember in the Acts of the Apostles, we had Ananias and Sapphira, and they brought an offering before the Apostles. 
What was their sin in that case? They held something back, didn't they? They didn't, they said, I'm going to give it all, and they held a little bit back. Shouldn't have done that. It must have been really sobering to watch your entire offering go up in flames in front of you. It's a sign of all your sin gone, but it's also a sign of your total commitment. You've got to be trusting God if you've just given your best thing. It's gone up in flames. You've lost however much that would have cost your family. You've got to be trusting God for the future. Total commitment and reliance on him. Do you remember the woman in the New Testament who brought the oil and she poured it over Jesus' feet? Precious oil. She poured on his feet in love. The whole lot. She didn't hold any back. She put the whole lot on his feet. And everyone in the room was like, oh, that was like a year's wages. What's this woman doing? What on earth has she done? Why didn't she just put a little bit on? I mean, this room stinks. But she gave the whole lot. It's a really burnt offering type sacrifice, isn't it? She gives the whole lot and holds nothing back. What does Jesus say to this woman? He says, your sins are forgiven. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but I really wish that I was more like that. That I didn't hold stuff back. That I chucked it all on the altar before God. Said, all that I am, it is yours. I'm not going to hold a single thing back from you. But too often I know that there's a war going on in me. That God gets a little bit, maybe not even my best, and I get the rest. When Abraham took Isaac up, he was to be a burnt offering. Total and utter sacrifice, commitment to God. You get my best. My absolute most treasured possession is yours, God. He held nothing back. And when we spend time begrudging what we're giving God, we haven't quite grasped what he's done for us. We're missing the point. You see, I was thinking about this, and he isn't really interested in the meat. We know that from other scriptures, from the New Testament, God isn't interested in actually an animal dying in front of him. That isn't what he found a pleasing aroma. What he found a pleasing aroma was the worshipper's heart behind the sacrifice. That kind of, I'm going to give you my best, God. And I'm not just going to give you a little bit. You're going to get my absolute best and you're going to get all of it. And I'm going to commit my life totally to you. That was the pleasing aroma. Because we know in other scriptures that God says, I don't desire that. And David says, you don't desire this or I would bring it. What you want is a heart, a humble and broken heart before you. And thirdly, of course, we see Jesus in the sacrifice. We can't but not. The perfect sacrifice, the perfect life, the voluntary death. He chose to give it. It wasn't forced. In the Garden of Gethsemane, we see his total submission to God, his will, not mine. 
And in Ephesians 5, 2, it says, Christ loved him and gave himself up as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice to God. And Peter also talks of the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, 1 Peter 1, 19. And Hebrews, if you read that amazing book, what does it talk about? Hebrews 10. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. And the writer concludes in that chapter, verse 10. He says, we've been made holy, able to come before a holy and righteous God through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. Flawless, complete sacrifice brought our restored relationship with God once and for all. And um, it made me think of this letter that um, a friend of mine received. It was from a Canadian friend. And it was, a, it was a, a really moving letter. It was a long time ago now. I can just vaguely remember it. But um, she basically lost her, her child and her husband within one year. And in this, you know, she could have been desperately bitter. And obviously she was devastated. But one thing she wrote in this letter was, he owes me nothing. She, she knew that what the Lord had done for her, like the woman who anointed Jesus' feet, that even if he never gave her another good thing, he'd done more than she could ever repay. The believer who truly appreciates the wonder that we see here in the communion table of what Jesus has done can do nothing but come with the heart attitude that the Israelites brought when they brought a lamb, saying, I sacrifice to you my best, my all, everything I have to you. And I lay my life down in complete and utter surrender and commitment to you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we um, we come before your table now and we look at the sacrifice your son made, perfect sacrifice, without blemish, for our sin. And as we, in a sense, lay our hands on his head as our substitute, we know that we can do nothing but fall before you in total thankfulness and obedience to you with our lives. Lord, we just acknowledge the times 
when we have taken this for granted. When we've held our lives back from you. When we've not been obedient. And we thank you that you freely forgive us. And you welcome us in with come. Come in, my child. Jesus, I want to pray for anyone today who doesn't yet know that security of being able to come into you and talk with you as a loving father and know the joy of being completely free of knowing what you've done. I want to pray, God, that today they would feel your presence, your Holy Spirit on them right here, right now, calling them as your child. And Father, I want to pray for those who feel distant from you today, who feel far away, who feel like it's impossible to get in. Why would you even want them now? And Father, I pray that they would hear your voice today saying, come, come in, my child.